Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Valentine's Day episode. We wanted to talk to you about a truly awful couple today, and we couldn't think of anyone worse than Lori and Chad Daybell. I hadn't heard a lot about this particular case until I was talking to Amanda about it. She knows a lot more about it and has been following it for a lot longer than I have been. She even went to Rexburg, Idaho, where some of this takes place. It's fascinating. Every single piece of it. It sounds like you're reading a really weird book where you're like, that's not real. That didn't happen, but it did. And it continues. It continues to be just as bad. So we're going to start our story kind of in the middle and then bounce to the beginning. There is a lot of detail in this case. We're streamlining it. So this is the first time you've heard of this case. You can get some base details. So when we talk about it in future episodes or we give updates, you'll have a good context. We're also going to post a timeline as well as a infographic of the people involved in the case on our social media. There's a lot of characters in the story. So it does help to be able to reference them and actually see who you're talking about. And there's also a couple that have the same name, just spelled slightly different. So it does truly help. We'll also try to give context for who people are as we're going because we're aware that most people probably aren't going to be staring at an infographic of who's who in a case while we're talking about it. So on June 9th, the remains of Tylee and J.J. Vallow were found on Chad Dable's property. J.J. was wrapped in black and white plastic that was sealed with duct tape. His hands were bound. Tylee's body had been dismembered and burned. In the months before the children's remains were found, there was an intense search and all signs pointed towards their mother, Lori, and the man who would eventually become her husband, Chad Daybell. So we're going to go backwards a bit. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Lori for the most part because she was their mom. So Lori was born Laurie Cox in June of 1973. We mentioned Chad a moment ago. So in March of 1980, Chad Daybell married his wife, Tammy. In 1992, Laurie married a man named Nelson. Their marriage didn't last long, and it was soon annulled. In October of 1995, Laurie married her second husband named William in Texas. In 1996, she has her first son. His name's Colby. In 1998, Laurie divorces William. So fast forward to 2001, she marries her third husband. His name's Joseph Ryan. And then in 2002, they have Tylee. The reason why we're going over this is because Lori's married a total of five times. And so that's just kind of another characteristic about her that is just kind of odd. I think one of the reasons that people are drawn to this story, and I'm not saying everybody, I'm just saying some people, is that Lori is this like very conventionally beautiful blonde woman. In our society, we talked about it in our Hotels That Kill episode, that when someone's attractive, we assume that they can't do horrible things at the onset. And she's very charming. There's a couple times as we go through this case where she did look kind of sketchy, right? And she could have possibly been caught or they could have looked at her just a little bit more. But she charms people enough to where they're like, she's harmless. So in 2004, Laurie and Joseph divorce. And from what it seems, this was her most contentious divorce. Colby didn't have a good relationship with his stepfather, Joseph, and there were allegations of abuse. And the custody battle for Tylee was also heated as well. 
So if you have heard of this case, you've probably seen the case under Lori Vallow because that is the most known name for her. And we'll come up with that. Why? In just a minute. Also, you'll see a name tossed around called Annie Cushing. And Annie Cushing is Tylee's aunt. And she has been very, very big into this case because she has created a whole website and timeline that she's put together of everything that's happened. And Annie, actually, she stopped having a relationship with her brother, Joseph, after she witnessed him abusing Colby. It was like the last straw. So the the relationship wasn't a strong relationship. However, she still is technically related to Tylee. So she has been very invested in this case and has put together some of the puzzle pieces. So in February of 2006, Laurie and Charles Vallow get married in Las Vegas. And Charles, when he came to the marriage, he had two sons from a previous marriage. So another person who we're going to talk about is Laurie's brother, Alex Cox. And so in August of 2007, he was arrested for second degree aggravated assault for attacking Joseph Ryan, which would have then been her ex-husband. Right. In July of 2014, Charles and Lori adopt JJ. Charles was JJ's great uncle. Originally, Charles' sister Kay Woodcock and her husband Larry, JJ's grandparents, were taking care of him. And Charles and Lori were both younger and they had other children. So the Woodcocks thought that JJ would be better off with them. And so when they offered to adopt him, they took them up on it. Yeah, so they wanted to keep him, but they knew that he would do better with a younger couple. And then that's when Charles, who is Kay's brother, offered to adopt. Now, in case you see this name, JJ stands for Joshua Jackson. So when he was adopted, he became a Vallow. So they moved around quite a bit. So this little family, which again was Charles, Lori, Tylee, JJ, Colby was there for a while until he got old enough to move out. And also, I believe that Charles and his ex also shared custody of their kids. So occasionally he had two additional kids. In 2014, the Vallow family moved to Kauai, which is located in Hawaii. On a different timeline here, I'm going to jump to Chad for just a moment. So Chad, Daybell, and his wife, Tammy, and their family. In 2015, they moved to Idaho. And this is where it gets a little interesting. Chad claims that he had a near-death experience. And during this near-death experience, he was having a conversation with a grandfather and he learned about his future life. Chad claims that he was getting some pushes from the spirits of ancestors to move with Tammy and his family to Rexburg to ride out the end of times. He wrote several books as well, I will say that. Some started out kind of typical like LDS faith kind of books, and then they slowly went to like end of times books. One of his books called The Edge of Heaven, he says that the accident, so his near-death experience, caused his veil, which he says like there's a veil to the other side, and it caused his veil that separates the mortal life from the spirit world to stay partially open. So he had like his foot in both worlds in his mind. Hmm. And that's kind of where it all began, right? Is when he started to have these weird visions and claims that he knew the end of times was coming. I'm not saying that he's not batshit crazy, but I will say that it's like a known like trope, I feel like in movies and television, that when people have near-death experiences, they're like, I suddenly, my eyes are open. I understand the world more. I know what's happening after. So I think it's interesting that like this feels like it was like ripped from a very poorly written movie. (laughs) 
So around this time, too, I have seen reports that this is when Lori started to read Chad Daybell's books. I don't know if that's fact or not, but at one point, obviously, she did. So there's speculation that it was 2015, around that time. So in 2017, the Vallow family moves to Arizona. In April of 2018, Joseph Ryan dies of a heart attack. And again, that's Tylee's father and Lori's third husband. This is the first of Lori's husbands to die. Yeah. There's been some speculation now that all of this other information has been uncovered to whether his death was natural or not. And as of this moment in time, it is still ruled natural. I've seen reports that they were thinking of reopening it and then not reopening it. So in May of 2018, I believe this is actually when Annie went to go visit her niece, Tylee, to kind of see how she was doing and like show her that she still has kind of family from that side. She was there to be a supportive aunt, you know? So during this visit, this is where Lori starts to be a little funny. And at one point, she tells Annie that she's concerned for the end of times and that sometimes she thinks it would just be easier to put the kids in a car and go off of a cliff. It's very weird. And, you know, Annie's visiting her brother's ex-wife and her niece at this time. And from everything I've read on this, she just had like the weirdest of times while she was there. We won't go into too much detail, but there's just a lot of odd events that happened during this time. So here's kind of the triggering event for everything that unfolds from 2018 to today. In the fall of 2018, Lori and her friend who she met in Arizona, her name is Melanie Gibb. And from here on, I'm going to just call her Gibb because there's two Melanies that are in this story. But Lori and Gibb meet Chad Daybell at an event where Chad was speaking. I've seen reports that this was a preparing a people event. Preparing a people is another group that you'll see a lot of surrounding the story and think of them as essentially doomsday preppers. They teach how to prep for doomsday. They tell you what you should do and how you should do it and give you kind of like tips and tricks to prepare for end of times. Fun hobby. And they have events all over. So Lindsay, if you ever want to attend one, let me know because I will uh, watch from your live feed because I will not be going near these people. Maybe. I don't think it's bad to be prepared. I just find that I generally don't agree with people when they say the world is going to end because it's never like global warming, bitch. It's always like there's a wall between good and evil or I am a prop. I know things and things just never go well once you believe someone who says that. Exactly. After all of this has unfolded, Melanie Gibb has had an interview with East Idaho News and she talked about how Lori and Chad hit it off like right away. And they began basically keeping in contact after this meeting. They emailed each other. They had special phones to communicate with one another, which remember at this time, they're both married. They're both married to two different people. This is unrelated, but I just need you to know that Chad has the look of someone who uses AOL still. Absolutely. Or a Hotmail account. Hey, hey, watch it. I have a Hotmail account and I don't look like a frog. I'm just saying. (laughs) Sorry about that. Just needed to interject. You know what? That's roots. Okay? That's roots of the internet. Roots of the internet. My Yahoo email address (laughs) is roots of the internet as well. Yeah. AOL is fine. Hotmail, you're overstepping a little. 
Okay. Yeah. AOL. Yeah. Okay. We can shit talk AOL all day. I do miss like the simplicity of like. Oh yeah. It's all on one screen. The beginning of the internet <laughs> era. Yeah. One screen. That's all you can have. And it's going to go slow if you open more than one website. And when one of your friends gets online, it like makes that sound. And when they leave, it slams the door. Oh man. And like, you've got mail. Your away message was where it was at. All the things. Yeah. Oh yeah. Your away message, but also your profile. And you learn to make like all different types of like little pictures with symbols and stuff. This is not what we're talking about. Tell me about these emails, though, that that he sent from his AOL email address. I don't think that's proven, (laughs) but I mean, might as well. Might as well. It it is redacted, by the way, from his email. So it could have been. Lori for style is her email, by the way, like the front of it. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. She's a mess. But I mean, chad.daybell at AOL has a ring to it. It does. It has a certain je ne sais quoi. Anyways, so they hit it off. They start talking. They have special creepy secret cell phones. At one point of time, there's some talk about how they used portals to communicate as well. Oh. So just this is kind of where they started to descend into this weird madness, doomsday, end of times, portal talk, creepy relationship. Why would they need cell phones if they had portals? They couldn't get to their portal at all times. You don't know. Yeah. So it's just, it's very weird that they were both, you know, married with their own families at this time. You know, they have spouses and children, and then they're having kind of this creepy secret relationship. Yeah. So at one point too, and I, there's not really a date that I can find, but Chad told Lori that they had been married in previous lives. Can I just tell you, that is such a fucking line. Uh, Oh, that's the biggest pickup line I could imagine. I've loved you in previous lives. She's like, oh, hey, let's get secret cell phones. I love you in this one. And I've loved you in every life. I'll talk yeah. to you through my portal. Yeah. And AOL. Like, it's bad lines. It's like not even good lines. No, no. And how you've described Lori, too, what I want to say is like, Lori and Charles are like, I don't know, when you look at them as a couple, they are the cutest couple. But then like, Chad, he doesn't exude confidence. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Chad Daybell live is like hair raising. That sounds horrific. Chad Daybell live. Oh, I know. I was always saying it. I was like, oh, when you look at him, he looks very non-threatening though. But again, we talked about that in the cult episode that that is kind of how they start out. Right. And this is kind of how he started out. Yeah. Right? Like, let's go to Rexburg and oh, for sure. You know, lead the end of times. And it's weird that he chose kind of a off the grid ish place. Rexford's very small. You kind of go through nothing to get there. Like the biggest place next to it is Idaho Falls. And I stayed in Idaho Falls when I was visiting Rexburg because there wasn't really much in Rexburg. It's just a very quaint little town. It's super cute. But now when you go there, there's like this looming presence of just sinister vibes. The only time I've ever seen Rexburg outside of this is in 90 Day Fiance. I still can't believe that that happened. I didn't even know about that. And I've researched it for over a year now. But anyways, so in October 2018, Chad sends Lori an email and it says, here are the family history documents you requested. It included basically like a rating system of light versus dark spirits. And he listed Lori's family, each of their names, and then gave each one a rating, whether they were light or dark and like on the scale, what level of light and dark they were. What I love is that he included all of her husbands. He was like, you've been married four times. This isn't a red flag for me. No, 
No, like Lori is a 4.3 light. Her sister's light. Her brother's light, right? She has multiple brothers. Both of them are actually light. And then, yeah, her husband's are dark. Her oldest son, Colby's light. However, his wife, Kelsey, is dark. She's a three dark. Colby and Kelsey, by the way, after all of this tragedy has happened, they have their own YouTube channel. And I was watching one of the videos this morning. And at one point, someone asked something about how Lori didn't like Kelsey. And they they addressed it a little bit. So, I mean, she didn't like her. And it's kind of out there, right? Charles was a three light. And now I want to say the, the most important two people on here are Tylee and JJ. JJ is rated a 4.2 light while Tylee is rated a 4.1 dark. And that's kind of the first time you hear something about the kids and you start to go, this is like a big precursor. This is a big, big deal. Your kid's always good in your eyes. It's good. And and that's kind of a red flag. If someone outside is saying your kid's dark or something negative about your kid, that's when you go, hold on. <laughs> that's my kid. Lori's niece is also named Melanie, but it's Melanie with an I, not an I-E. So if you ever look into anything. But at this time, her name was Melanie Boudreaux. She was light, three light. And her husband is Brandon Boudreaux. And he was a three dark. And the reason why I bring them up too is because it seems like people that she didn't like or maybe who Chad didn't like or that maybe got in their way in some fashion were dark. And they're not good people. If you're in my way, you are not a good person. And this is kind of where it began in a sense. Also included in this email, it talks about her past lives. Yeah. Very weird. And then how he says, here's the family history documents you requested. So he probably, I mean, this is my guess, but he's like, oh, I can see this. I can do that. And she's like, oh, well, tell me about my family, right? Like, why else does this email exist? Very weird, very strange, and I hate it. So their weird relationship. I'm going to call it a relationship because I, I think it's fair to say they were having a secret relationship, even if they um, they could have been friends at first. I don't know. But having secret cell phones leads me to believe that they were hiding something and maybe there was more to it. Agreed. If your spouse has a secret cell phone, there's something fishy. There's something weird. Yeah, absolutely. In November of 2018, Chad then comes and stays with Lori in Arizona. And Gib actually talks about this event. And she says there were other people present and the kids were not present at this time. Other noteworthy events from 2018 were that Chad told Lori that he wasn't allowed to get a divorce from his wife per a revelation that he had had. And then also, Gib had suggested to Laurie that she divorce Charles because of this blossoming relationship with Chad. And Laurie said that the other side of the veil told her that they could not get a divorce. And that other side of the veil language sounds like Chad very intensely to me. So that was kind of like, ugh. In early December of 2018, Chad and Laurie made their first podcast appearance together when on their Preparing a People's Podcast, Time to Warrior Up with her friend Melanie Gibb. So I've tried to listen to some of the episodes that have come up during this because they are no longer up. It's just people that had them recorded that were able to like put them back online. And they are hard listens. They're very weird. I'm intrigued, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's intriguing. But also you're just like knowing what you know now listening to them or like when I first listened to them, it was when the kids were missing and you're just trying to find any puzzle piece and you're just like, how do you believe some of the stuff? Yeah, it's confusing. So moving to 2019, on January 31st, Charles was coming home after being away for work. So he gets to the airport and he finds out that his ticket for his flight has been canceled. Strange. He buys another ticket and he gets back to Arizona. And when he gets there, 
his truck is missing from the parking lot. And that's strange. So Charles tries to come home and he's locked out of the house. He tries to get a hold of Lori. He tries to get a hold of one of Lori's brother. His name's Adam Cox. His son, Zach, was living with them at the time. So he also tried to call him. Couldn't get a hold of him. So he's locked out of the house. He calls the police. There's body cam footage that you can watch. And it's really sad because you see that Charles is hurting. He's like, I don't know what's going on. We were great. Everything was great. Our marriage was great. And then she started being different. And he mentions to the police that she took all of the money out of their account and basically told him, you are not Charles. I don't know who you are. And I don't know what you did with Charles. I can murder you with my powers. And imagine being the cop there like, what? Yeah. What's happening? That sounds like it would be like, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It was just a big mess. And like, I feel Charles is another big victim in this story because he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything wrong. There's a couple police videos, like the body cam videos of Charles kind of talking to various officers about this. And there's one also where he's telling one of the officers, she thinks that I'm a different person. She thinks that I'm Nick Schneider, I want to say. And I tried to like figure out like, what is Nick Schneider? What is that person? And I couldn't really find like a, a person that would have any sort of I don't know, tie to this weird tragedy. However, there was at one point a demonology book that there was an introduction by Nicholas Schneider. Oh, could I don't know. Just it was weird that it was like, you know, demons and she's saying he's he's turning dark, you know, or didn't think that he was who he is. Anyways, so the following day, there's another body cam video that shows Lori, Tylee, and you know that Melanie Gibb is there as well. And it's them at the Gilbert Police Department. And Lori is talking about how Charles stole her purse and her phone when she dropped JJ off at school. And in this video, too, it's very weird to me that like she's going on and on about Charles. And then meanwhile, you see Tylee and she's blurred out because she's a minor, right? And you hear her go, just listen to him. Just listen to what he has to say. And she's kind of being the parent in this video. And my heart breaks for her. Yeah, because it, it's sad. Anyways, so what Charles did is he asked for basically like a mental wellness check on Lori. And she does go for her evaluation. And she's kind of charming the uh, police here too. She's like, I caught him cheating. And this is all in reference to that and like kind of brushes it off. And being an outsider, if we didn't know anything else happening at this time, you'd be like, oh, like, that's a bummer. Like I could see someone, you know, getting mad about being found that they were cheating and like kind of a retaliation. Sure. So in February of 2019, Charles filed for divorce and he claims that Lori threatened to murder him. If you Google around, you can find some of these documents too, like the the divorce documents. And it's a very interesting read because it talks about how she's like thinking he's not him and was kind of around the time where she thinks she's starting to become like a translated being. Just to throw that little tidbit in there, because that's not weird. Yeah. So during this time too, and I can't find a specific date, but February of 2019, Lori disappears for around 58 days. And later on, we found out that she was in Hawaii during this time. And while in Hawaii, she also met up with her friend named April. In one of the interviews with April, she mentioned that Lori was trying to recruit her as one of the chosen ones. Oh. The chosen ones are 144,000 people that essentially are like meeting in Idaho for the end of times. What a weird place for the end of times to be. Right, of all places. Yeah. But she basically tells her, yes, you're one of the chosen ones, but it comes at a heavy price. You're two boys. Basically, once being chosen, that means she would have had to separate herself from her children and then join Lori and the other chosen ones. So they'd all like be together and prepare for the end of times. 
So April kindly declined this offer. Good choice, April. Good choice. And think about it from April's point of view, too. Because remember, Lori lived in Hawaii for some time with Charles. And they were just a regular old family at that time. You know, great mom, was really into her kids, just all around normal person. And then you see your friend again and you're like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) What do you want me to do for the end of Okay. Well, thank you for coming over. It was nice to see you again, but no. Yeah. No, I would be like, good day. Have a good day. Yeah. So also in February, remember, Charles had filed for divorce. He changed his mind and decided maybe we should try to work on this. Obviously, it doesn't work. They start living separately. He goes back to Texas. Towards the end of February, someone calls into Charles's life insurance company and places a pin on the account. And Charles kind of figures this out, that his account's being hacked. And he ends up writing a letter, and this letter is available online too, so at least pieces of it, to the insurance company. And basically, he's asking for a transcript of who called. And at this time too, he submits some forms to change his beneficiary information, and he changes it to K. Thank goodness he changes it to K. And it's a million dollars, correct? Yeah, he changes it to K. And then I I have seen too that his sons were on there as well, but I have not actually seen like the actual documents. Everything that I've ever heard was that it was just K. Well, to help care for JJ in the event that something happened to him. But also, I'm sure he seemed like such a great father. I'm sure he tried to take care of his other boys as well. Can you even imagine what it would have been like to be Charles X and to know that like your two sons were around this woman? My heart hurts for her because woof. Like, what if she had done something to her two sons as well? And like, we get a little further and we'll talk a little bit about how perhaps Lori doesn't really care about them because she doesn't really keep them in the loop of things. So also during this time, when he changes the beneficiary, there's an email that he CC'd K on. And he says, if anything should happen to me before I get all of this fixed, my beneficiary is Ethel Kathleen Woodcock. So he knew something was coming. Well, I mean, not surprising. I think the writing was kind of on the wall here, which is heartbreaking because he was like, I love this woman. We have a good life. And then things change very quickly. So in March, Lori and Tylee come back from Hawaii. In May of 2019, just another timeline here for a moment. Melanie, Lori's niece, asks her husband at the time, Brandon Boudreaux, for a divorce. He thinks at the time that it's related to her and her new weird religious beliefs with Lori. So Melanie and Lori are pretty close. And we'll talk a little bit more about how close they are. But I just want you to keep that in the back of your head that they are close and that she had odd religious beliefs that started to come up as well. And Brandon notes that. So around the end of June of 2019, Charles emails another one of Laurie's brothers, Adam, and he says that he's concerned about Laurie's relationship with Chad. And so Charles is aware that Chad is buried to Tammy. And so he talks about his plans to reach out to Tammy. But this next part's not going to be surprising that on July 11th, Charles dies. He was shot by Alex at Laurie's rental home in Chandler, Arizona. Now, Alex claims that he shot Charles in self-defense. So when law enforcement gets there, they don't even really investigate the scene. When they go inside to check out like the scene, they just let Alex sit on the curb, not handcuffed, not restrained in any way. He's just out there chilling. And then later, when Lori and Tylee show up, they're interviewing them and you could, there's body cam footage available, which is how like you know some of this. But so Laurie's like, oh, what are the neighbors going to think of us? And is like jovial. And I understand that like you can have a very contentious breakup with someone 
But if the person who you've been raising your children with is dead, even if you don't feel sad for your child's sake, right? Like you should act like a human at the very bare minimum. It was very peculiar. She was acting like she was being interviewed for a new Froyo stand around the corner. It was a very weird vibe. It is. And when he says it was self-defense, he talks about how Charles came at him with a bat. He says at one point, Tylee went to go get a bat because there was a heated argument. And then like Lori takes the kids and takes JJ to school. So it's like this big argument supposedly is happening. And then she's like, um, I'm going to take the kids to school. And I understand like trying to get the kids out of a scary situation. 1000% absolutely get the kids out of there. But it's just very convenient that no one was home when this happens too. So from Alex's point of view, he says that Charles hit him with a bat. And then so he went and grabbed his gun. And then I want to say in one of the body cams, one of the police officers even mentions there's multiple bullets. So very weird. But there's also the 911 call that came out as well. And Alex is very calm. I feel like if I just shot someone in self-defense, I'd be like, I didn't mean it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You'd be freaking out. You know, like it's still a family member. And he's just like, I shot my brother-in-law. And they're like, is he breathing? What's going on? And he's like, it doesn't appear that he is like they they kind of walk him through like is his chest moving and you know all all the 911 things but he's so calm like weirdly creepy calm this is our second husband who is dead now correct so yep. it's the 11th laurie decides to wait a full day and she texts charles son the next day to let him know that th- that their father died and in the text exchange she's like weirdly sweet So what she says is, hi, boys, I have very sad news. Your dad passed away yesterday. I'm working on making arrangements and I'll keep you informed with what's going on. I'm still not sure how to handle things. Just wanted you to know that I love you. And so did your dad with a little like heart. And then they asked her what happened. So she was like, we are still waiting for the Emmy report. I'll let you know when I can. I feel like, again, like their biological mother, if I was her, I would have been like, I am going to wring someone's neck. Like, how dare you do this to my children? How dare you say it like that? Can you imagine through text message? What kind of heartless monster texts someone your dad died? Lori, that's who. She's literally the worst. So let's talk about another reason why she's the worst. In August, Laurie placed an ad to sell JJ's service dog. JJ had been diagnosed with autism, so he had the service dog, Bailey, to help him. In the ad, she notes that the owner's dead, which is peculiar because it was Charles that had just died, not JJ. And like, from everything that I saw, like, he was very close to this dog. And from what I understand, too, it helped him stay in bed. He he would get up sometimes and Bailey would be there to, like, help him. And then all around, too... Even in like Colby's video, his YouTube video, he mentions he had a connection with this dog. This dog was fantastic. I want to say they got him when he was a puppy and then they trained him to be the service dog through a training center here in Arizona. And I will say too, just kind of one happy ending to the story. So you have a little bit of hope here. I reached out to the trainer who trained Bailey and I was like, hey, I understand she got rid of the dog and you were the one to come and pick him up. Right. What happened to the dog? The trainer, his name's Neil. He said the dog is safe. The dog is doing well and he's with another family and he's helping another boy. Mm, I love that. That's that's a yeah. good that's a good point. We'll take that. You one. need a little bit of happiness while going through all of this negativity. We'll take this one little kernel. So that happened on August 9th. The next day, Larry and Kay Woodcock, who were Charles's sister and brother-in-law, were asking to see JJ or to talk to him. 
And so Laurie finally lets them talk to him on FaceTime. And the call is like just it's like it's 36 seconds. And it's just it feels almost like a proof of life video, like just to show that like he's around. And so they obviously barely have a conversation because it's 36 seconds. And that's the last time that Larry and Kay see JJ, which hurts my heart very deeply. And throughout this, they just kept asking like if they could see him, if they could talk to him because, yeah, they let Charles and Laurie adopt him, but they only did it because they thought that was what was best for him so they were like this hurts us and we love you and we miss you but if it's better for you it's the right choice up until this it was the right choice yeah yeah because then he had this loving sister if you've looked at any of the videos from this case i really really got invested in this family i really with every ounce of me hoped that they would be found alive and i have found various videos of tylee and jj together and like tylee's friends would record videos of them and they had the cutest sibling relationship ever she was like like a sister mom in a way like she very much cared for jj and she she very much was protective of JJ. So the reason why I bring this up is because I do feel like that might have played a role in it later as to what happens and why she did disappear first. Yeah, I think that's right. So we both watched a documentary on YouTube TV called Doomsday, The Missing Children. They're with Larry and Kay throughout this journey of trying to find the children. And when key elements of this case happen, they're with them. There's something very painful about when you see them learn each thing because the people who were shooting the documentary were in the room when they find out some of the worst of the worst things and you see them fall apart and it's like my heart just breaks every time like I even think about it. Throughout all of this, when when there's interviews and different pieces of information that come up at various times and we've compiled this all together, but information came out months apart, days apart, years apart at some points and why? Watching Kay and Larry, honestly, Larry Woodcock has made me shed various tears. Girl, I'm crying right now. Because of his emotion going through trying to find his boy. He calls him his boy a couple times. He says, JJ is my heart. And every time he says, JJ is my heart, I'm like, I just want him to be happy so much. And I found myself wanting, like, I knew the end of the story before I watched the documentary, but I found myself being like, maybe it's wrong. Like, maybe all the information's wrong and for JJ and Tally to be fine and another just kind of like important wrinkle in that is when they're looking for JJ they're looking for Tylee and JJ and they don't have any blood relation to Tylee they nope. loved her because she was JJ's sister and they too describe her as a protector and that they were like she fiercely loved him like we knew that he would always be okay because she was there too like we saw their relationship and we loved them yeah and I felt like that as you know like I got into this case in early 2020 when it kind of was out there that these kids were missing so before we're not even at that part yet but i got invested in this family and the day that they were searching chad's property i i can like recall almost every minute of that day just sitting there with like my mouth open like this can't be it this can't be it this isn't them oh my gosh they found bodies that's not them like that can't be them they're safe they're fine in my head even though you kind of knew, you're like, this didn't happen because I don't want Larry Woodcock to find out because I don't want him to be sad. Yeah. So we're now at the end of August and Lori, JJ and Tylee meet Lori's oldest son, Colby, in the parking lot of where he works because they're about to move to Rexburg. And she was like, hey, we're moving. That seems strange that she's telling her child that she's moving states away like the day before. 
Well, and they were a family, you know, like Colby cared for his siblings quite a bit. Yeah. And so the next day they moved from Chandler, Arizona to Rexburg, Idaho. Pretty early on in into September, on September 3rd, Lori enrolls JJ at Kennedy Elementary School in Rexburg, Idaho. On September 8th, Tylee is seen for the last time when Lori, Alex, JJ and Tylee go to Yellowstone Park. The reason why they know that she was with them in there is because there's footage from Yellowstone's cameras. There were also photos that were recovered from the iCloud that showed that Tylee was there. And here's something that just when you're watching this all unfold real time, all you know is like they're missing. There was no information, right? And this came out way later that she had gone to Yellowstone and that was the last time she was seen. And when that came out, the internet banded together to look for anyone that was there on that day that took pictures that could possibly have Tylee and the family in them. And it was just amazing watching the internet do this where they're like, people were volunteering their time to go through Yellowstone pictures, you know, hashtag Yellowstone, anything like that. And they're like, this timeline lines up. Do you have any pictures that might include these people? It was just amazing to see how many people were looking for these kids. So September 8th is the last day that she's seen. September 9th, Chad sends his wife Tammy a really interesting text. And he says, well, I've had an interesting morning, exclamation point. I felt I should burn all of the limb debris by the fire pit before it got too soaked by the coming storms. While I did so, I spotted a big raccoon along the fence. I hurried and got my gun and he was still walking along. I got close enough that one shot did the trick. He is now in our pet cemetery. Fun times, exclamation point. So a few things. Raccoons are nocturnal animals. If you see one during the day, there is a higher probability that they are rabid. Let's start there. Because my first question was, why are you killing woodland animals? That could be perhaps the reason why. When we get to how the children were found, you will hate them as much as we do. I feel like that's just like the easiest way to say that. Yeah. And I have a few things from this as well. So he texts her around 1153 a.m. Right. So like you mentioned, raccoons aren't going to be out normally during the day unless something's weird. In addition to that, why would you kill a raccoon, then bury it in your pet cemetery? Because if if you love your pets in any way, right, cemetery for your dogs, cats, whatever pets you may have, that's a special place for your pets. He had around three acres of land, too, just to kind of paint a picture of his house. And I've personally driven by his house and I have some videos of like how big and open this property is. So it's just very weird. First off, that he'd be out there looking for a raccoon. Then he would shoot this raccoon and then he would bury it where he buries his pets. And from what I understand about Tammy too, Tammy was just like the most loving, sweet mother. People I've talked to about Tammy, interviews, things like that that I've seen. She was well loved by the community. So on September 19th, Melanie Gibb arrives in Rexburg to stay with Laurie and she stays with her through the 24th. And so when Gibb gives her account of this time, she says that on September 22nd, Laurie herself and and David Warwick are reporting a podcast and they go from basically like 9 p.m. to a little bit past midnight, which Amanda and I can attest that you sometimes like a 40 minute episode can take three hours. So definitely takes a a bit. And so Alex came in with JJ and he was carrying JJ because JJ was asleep and he was in his pajamas. The next morning, after everybody wakes up, David and Gib ask Lori where JJ is. And Lori gives this really strange story. And she says that JJ had been acting out. So the way that Lori describes him acting out was that he was climbing all over the cabinets and knocked over a picture of Jesus. And then she claimed that him and Alex 
Alex had went somewhere. Yeah, and I will say too, and this came out later, like much later after all of this is unraveled, Melanie Gibb talks about how Lori called her kids zombies. But a zombie it isn't like a typical zombie zombie like in the movies. It's that they have been taken over by like either a dark spirit or a dark entity, if I understand it properly, in Valo's speak. One, that's possession. Yeah, exactly. Not a zombie. Exactly. That, that detail, I'm just like, at least don't be wrong. Right. Gib has taken the stand already in some of the court hearings that have taken place already. And she mentioned that, I want to say it was a phone call that Lori calls Tylee a zombie at some time. And then it's also, I want to say, in one of the court documents that she mentioned it. And then this weekend when she came to Rexburg, that's the first time that Lori called JJ a zombie. And it was her duty, essentially, to get rid of zombies, according to what she had told Melanie Gibb, either in a phone call or at one of their meetings prior to this. And that should have been, in my opinion, to Melanie Gibb, a big red flag. So prior to this, Lori Vallow had told Melanie Gibb that it was like kind of like her and I don't know if she included Chad in this, but their duty to get rid of zombies. And there was various ways to get rid of them. I want to say at some point it was like to kill zombies, like that they drop dead from their weird prayer or something essentially to get rid of them off this world. But anyway, so Melanie, I understand also she's kind of a victim in this, but also like she knew a lot more. And I feel like if my friend was saying something negative about their kid as someone that also has children and Melanie has children as well. That should be a, no, your kid's a kid. And for JJ to act out, he he's a kid. Kids act out. Kids do weird things. Kids climb on counters. Kids accidentally knock over pictures. You know, like it's not out of the ordinary. Another thing I will say on this weekend that this came out before we had confirmation that Melanie was the person that visited this weekend, but there was a babysitter that came forward while they were missing. And she mentioned watching JJ once and that she had tried to reach out to Lori to work again on September 24th. And Lori responded that JJ was with his grandparents for a month and that she was in Hawaii and that they could work it out when she returned. Then around Halloween, the babysitter reached out again and got no response. In some of the information with the babysitter, she also mentioned like why she was watching JJ is Lori went to go pick someone up from the airport. So I believe that was Melanie Gibb and her then boyfriend. But while she was there, the babysitter did not see any belongings of Tylee, nor did she see Tylee. And it's weird that, you know, if Tylee was around at this time, she probably would have been the one to watch JJ. And when um, Melanie visited and she asked, like, where's Tylee? Lori had mentioned that she was at BYU. Yeah. And it's interesting because she makes up lies that are very easily, for the most part, like refuted. Like a simple phone call will prove that he is not with the Woodcocks. Right. Exactly. Per Lieutenant Ron Ball's affidavit, JJ had an unexcused absence at Kennedy Elementary School on September 23rd. The next day, Lori went to the school to unenroll him. She told them that he was going to live with his grandparents in Louisiana until October, and then he would come home. Then, in October, the Madison School District records indicate that JJ would be homeschooled. And there was a lot of discussion surrounding the last day that JJ attended school, which for the longest time, there was a rumor that it was the 23rd. That was the last time he was seen at school. And everyone was like, well, at least after this happened, he had gone to school that following day. So maybe when Alex carried him in, he was sleeping. 
And then it later came out in court documents that that wasn't the case. And my heart just hurt because now I don't know if he was sleeping. I kind of go back and forth if he was or not based off of how they found him. Because if he was already deceased, why would they tie him up so much? And that's like a gruesome, horrific, terrible detail I don't want to like think about anymore. Yeah, I just don't understand how they could do this. So on October 1st, Lori rents a 10 by 10 storage unit in Rexburg, Idaho. Footage from the storage facility shows that Lori, Chad and Alex visit the unit numerous times on different days and they're bringing the children's belongings. When we're watching this documentary, when Larry's watching the footage, he notes that JJ's prized possession is his scooter. I'll know he's okay if he has his scooter because he would never go anywhere without it. That was like his favorite thing. And so you see them carrying stuff in and carrying stuff in. And then you see them take the scooter in and Larry's face just drops, right? Because he's like, like, I think that's when it like, it hit him like, maybe my boy isn't coming home. Like, yeah. That just everything surrounding Larry is what gets me because until this documentary, Kate is strong. You don't really see her break. You see her as I am here for business. I am getting my JJ back. I'm here for them. And she's all business, not in a negative way, but she just can hold it. And until this documentary, you don't really see Kate break. You always see Larry tearing up saying he's my heart. And this documentary, seeing them both break down multiple times, I just, I can't, like I can't uh, comprehend what these people were going through. And I watched most of it unravel and just seeing the emotion like filmed, I feel bad. But then it's also just like the the fire grows more like these people, these monsters, they better be brought to justice. Like I will not rest <laughs> until they're brought to justice for mainly like Larry and Kay. Yeah. And so and when you're watching the footage of them carrying stuff in, it's very clearly a substantial amount of belongings where like, as a person on the outside, you're like, that's probably all of their stuff right so okay so the next day the first she's starting to pack her kids stuff up into a storage unit and on the second she buys a wedding ring off of amazon using charles's amazon account and this was also a tidbit that came up later yeah and tammy's alive Tammy, Chad's wife, arrives home from grocery shopping and there's someone in her driveway with what she believes was a paintball gun and they're wearing a mask. She calls the police and the attacker skedaddles before they get there. So there is a uh, Facebook post from Tammy Daybell. And here's what she said. It says, okay, neighbors, something really weird just happened. And I want you to know so you can watch out. I had gotten home and parked in our front driveway. As I was getting stuff out of the backseat, a guy wearing a ski mask was suddenly standing by the back of my car with a paintball gun. He shot at me several times, although I don't think it was loaded. I yelled for Chad and he ran off to the back of the house. I have no idea what his motive was, and he never spoke. Even after I asked him several times what he thought he was doing, I was about to smack him with my freezer meals from enrichment tonight when I decided to yell for Chad instead. End of post. I wonder if she was almost naive to believe that someone was trying to shoot her with a paintball gun. And maybe it wasn't. And maybe they didn't load it properly. I truly believe in my heart that that wasn't a paintball gun. That's fair, because 10 days later, Chad calls 911 to tell them that Tammy died in her sleep. And investigators ruled that her death was natural at this point. So that's on October 19th. On October 22nd, Tammy is buried at Evergreen Cemetery in Springville. On that same day that she's buried, Chad brings his children to meet Lori. Ew. I don't like it. 
I don't like it. And honestly, like, if you were his children, wouldn't you a little bit be like, I don't know who you are? Right. Well, and to put it, put a little bit into this, his children are grown children. Yeah. Grown children. Some even have children of their own. So your mother died and then your father's bringing you to meet this random woman. Yeah. I don't like it. And there's even friends of Chad that have remarked in interviews, like, we expected just a, a grieving husband, right? And we didn't see that. Chad's going to chat. I hate him so much. I know. Just like at least one swift throat punch. If you had like a make a wish moment, you know? So on the 25th of October, one of Tylee's friends receives a text from her. But she doesn't really think that it's from Tylee because I don't think it was the way she talked. So it was like, hi, miss you guys too. Space dot dot dot. Love ya. But love is spelled like L-U-V, which if you're if you like know how someone texts, you know when it's not that person. Right. There's also accounts where Tylee, I guess, would in her mom's place send some money occasionally to her older brother. And the way like the interactions were just different. So on Halloween of 2019, Laurie's niece, Melanie, and Laurie's brother, Alex, pack up a U-Haul and move from Arizona to Rexburg. They arrive on November 4th. When they move to Rexburg, Lori's niece, Melanie, rents the townhome literally next door to hers. And I've physically been there. It steps away. I'll post some pictures from when I was in Rexburg. It is next to it. It's very close knit, right? And there's like little clusters. And Alex's townhome was in the next little cluster over. So it's a quick walk, super fast. You can be door to door like in a minute. Yeah. Okay. So remember, we said that Tammy died on October 19th. November 5th, Lori and Chad get married on, on Kauai Island in Hawaii. Blank, blank. That's a real quick turnaround, Chad. That's a real quick turnaround, my dude. And for Lori. Her husband just died as well. And for Lori. But look, I'm not saying it's not quick for her, too. I'm saying it's been more than a month. Right, right. They're not even smart criminals. I find it more offensive when people are bad criminals. Melanie, Lori's niece, and her ex-husband, Brandon Boudreaux, have children together. The children and Brandon were staying with Brandon's parents. Melanie gets arrested because she trespasses onto their property. Alex posts her bail. So weird thing. Think about this. So Melanie followed her aunt to Rexburg, right? And Rexburg, and and just putting puzzle pieces together, this is me. But Rexburg's where the 144,000 are going to meet, right? Remember her friend in Hawaii had to give up the kids. What was Melanie's ultimate goal? Oh, didn't even think about that. Why was she trying to get to her children? (sighs) Yeah, I don't know. When you watch interviews with her, she seems like she's like half drugged is the best way I can describe it. And it's not like any, maybe that's her personality. I don't know, but she's just like kind of hazy when she talks. And I just don't, in my gut, I do not trust her either. And it's just me seeing various interviews and knowing that she was next door to this monster and claims to not know a freaking thing that was happening next to her. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Also in November, Lori and Chad returned to Idaho from their honeymoon. And per court documents, when Lori and Chad were flying, They did not fly with children. So there's like a big question mark, like, where are the children? And so during this time, people are asking them, where are the children? Where are the children? Where are the children? And this includes relatives of Chad's, relatives of Charles, Laurie's relatives, like everyone around them is saying, where are the children? And so and her next door neighbor, Melanie, is just like, what? She had children? Like, just how do you not know that your aunt? Like your cousins aren't there. You live next door. 
Honestly, I think she probably was a quote chosen one as well. So not surprisingly, Kay Woodcock reaches out to the Rexburg Police Department saying that she hasn't seen JJ or Tylee in months and she asked them to perform a welfare check. On November 26, 2019, the Rexburg police attempted to perform a welfare check on Lori Vallow's townhome due to the Woodcocks basically calling and asking for this welfare check because they had not seen or heard from JJ. When they get there, and there's like a big affidavit that kind of reviews step by step exactly what happened that came out obviously after this, but Chad and Alex are there. And Chad acts like he doesn't even know Lori. He stated that he didn't even know her phone number. They literally had just gotten married and returned from their honeymoon at this point. But no one knows that. He freaking knew his wife's phone number. So Alex Cox told detectives that JJ was with his grandma, Kay, in Louisiana. And they're like, that's weird because she's the one wanting us to do the welfare check. So later that day, they return and Chad tried to drive away while the detectives were at the complex still. Typical Chad behavior. Right. The detective stopped his car and Chad told the investigator that the last time he had seen JJ was in apartment 107 in October. That was Alex's apartment number. He also admitted that he did know his wife's phone number. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, look, look, look. I'll tell you something true. I do know her phone number. Yeah. He knows that she has kids. He knows that they're gone. I mean, he's married to this woman. What the heck? Yeah. So Lori tells detectives that JJ is actually with Melanie Gibb in Arizona. And the detectives try to call Gibb and they're unable to reach her. So Lori claimed, oh, yeah, my friend has JJ. She's probably not answering because they're watching Frozen 2. She was taking him to a movie. So officers tell Lori, okay, we'll have her call us when they're done. Later, in an interview with Melanie, she described this entire day. And I'm just like, I'm fuming as she's describing it. She says Lori told her to basically say you have JJ and even told her to send a picture of random kids and say, like, make it look like you have JJ. After not hearing back from Gibb, police in Rexburg called the Gilbert Police Department, which is in Arizona. Officers from Arizona's police department reached her by phone. Melanie Gibb told them that JJ had not been there in several months. So what we discovered through all of this, like after all of this happens, Melanie has since come forward. At this point, we're like, we don't know anything about Melanie Gibberly until after everything's transpired. But she's done several interviews, long interviews describing this whole time. And in a way, you kind of feel bad for her. You're like, oh, being put in that spot. That's that's hard. That's horrible. But then also you're like, you were there the weekend that he was last seen. You were there. You're the adult in the situation to a child. You should have helped him. Yeah. And I kind of go through a lot of different emotions with Melanie Gibb because do I think that she killed the kids? No, I don't think that. But does she know more than she's leading on? In my opinion, I believe she does. And I do believe that she has some responsibility to the situation in a sense because she knew that zombies were bad. Someone calls their kid a zombie and they think zombies are bad. That's probably a big red flag. Not saying she should have, you know, strong armed Lori and Chad, but couldn't she have called the police at this point and been like, hey, something sketchy, even an anonymous tip. I don't care. See, she could have. But even if Child Protective Services had gone out and checked out the home, she's fooled people before. Well, the weekend that she left, right? That's the last time JJ was ever seen alive. Something happened to him then. Yeah. Alarm bell should have been going off. Well, that weekend while she was there before that evening that they did the podcast, JJ turned into a zombie. Okay, that's weird. I have just this like deep anger towards her. And the more and more she talks again, I know she's a victim. I get that in the back of my head. I do. I truly understand that. I don't see how she's a victim in this. 
Well, she was put into a really hard place, right? Like your best friend's saying to do this. Police are saying to do this. I get that hard place. I I guess victim is kind of a a strong word for her. She's collateral damage in this. And that like she was made complicit to her best friend's actions and didn't pick up on signs that she should have. Yeah. And as a result, in part, bad things happened because she didn't or maybe bad things would have happened either way, but it wouldn't have taken as long to figure it out. Right. Exactly. Like, it's already done, but it takes too long to figure out what happened. But she was told that JJ was a zombie before he went missing and he was alive. And that hurts my heart. And she knew that Tylee was called a zombie too. And then I feel like if I was visiting a friend from out of town and I knew that they had kids, I'd be like, where are your kids? Like, I'd love to say hi to them. I'd love to like see them. Yeah, that'd be very, very bizarre. So detectives are, they're starting to see red flags. And so at the end of November, on November 27th, police obtained a search warrant to search Lori, Alex, and Melanie's townhomes. Lori had already moved out. Yeah, in a day. Alex was, I believe, in the process of moving out because he was moving in with someone we'll mention in a moment. And then Melanie was still living in her townhouse, I believe. Yeah, she just wasn't home from what I understand because she had met a guy in Rexburg and she was going from pieces again, puzzle pieces kind of get found little by little. So again, like some things are found later. And what we find later during one of the interviews is that Melanie at this time, I believe, was going to visit her new boyfriend's family. So she wasn't home. But I want to address the time frame here. The 26th, they do the welfare check. The 27th, Lori already moved out of her townhome. From what it seemed like, she didn't have like, it was just her stuff, right? So like probably an easy move. And so at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, she's disappeared. They don't know where she went at first, correct? She's just in the wind. And so she's gone and Alex and Melanie are on their way to Vegas. No one knows where they are. I've seen some things that Chad and Lori, you know, disappeared and they weren't found again until January in Hawaii. There's also reports that at one point, Lori, Chad and some of their kids vacationed in California. And I'm wondering if this is the time because it would make sense for a flight to be from California to Hawaii. But his kids are fine. Oh, they're fine. They're totally fine. Yeah. Interesting that like the leader's kids, the leader doesn't have to do the hard thing. Well, think about it. The the adult kids are fine. Colby is fine. Yeah, that's true. It's kids who won't be in the way. Exactly. Yeah. So on November 29th, Alex marries Leah Pastenas in Las Vegas. And per the minister where they were getting married, he said that it was like a very unemotional wedding. And that it seemed almost transactional. Originally, Zulima and I believe her children were planning on moving to Rexburg. But rather than them moving there, he moved in with them on Thanksgiving of 2019. And he he was like, I'm going to stay in Arizona. And she was like, "Okay, cool. And so then he was living in Arizona. So like he was now separate from the Rexburg folks. And so the following day, November 30th, that's when Melanie Boudreaux marries Ian Palowski. And Alex is their witness. Couple weird things that have come since this on their marriage certificate between Alex and Zalema. Their witness is Keisha Hampton, which later on we learn is a security guard for Chapel of Love. Okay. Not even a friend, family, relative, nothing. Why wasn't Melanie there for him? I don't know. She didn't get there, I believe, until the next day when she got married to Ian. Everybody's getting married really quickly. Yeah. So I actually, after this, 
I went to Las Vegas right before COVID got real crazy. It was like the last week, I want to say, that the strip was even open before everything was shut down. And when I went, I decided to go to both of these places where they got married to poke around. And honestly, my goal was to talk to Keisha. Yeah. So I went to Chapel of Love. Unfortunately, it was closed. I guess they're only open like if you have an appointment or if you actually have a wedding planned. But I tried to like make friends with another security guard. I'm like, hey, you know, Keisha. And the guy was like, yeah, actually, she's a security (laughs) guard. And uh, so I was like, this is really weird. This is so weird. And I apologize. I am invested in this. And I want to find out more information about that day. Can you give her my phone number to call me? And he takes down my phone number and she never called me. Keisha. I know. I was so like, I'm here. I'm investigating. And no. Keisha, if you're listening, Amanda still wants to talk to you. I know. I still want to talk to you. I also went to the Lucky Little Chapel where Melanie and Ian got married. And Alex is their witness, by the way, on their certificate. And they there are pictures that surfaced of their wedding later. And I went through and I like took pictures. They let me in the chapel. Like they let me look around. I talked to a couple of the people. And they mentioned that it's very common that people actually plan their wedding there. Like it's not like a last minute thing that it was probably planned out. They couldn't remember them specifically and the the person who married them wasn't available to speak with. But I spoke with like the girls that work there and they were super sweet and they knew of the case too. Mm. And they were like, I just hope they're found. So another thing that came out later on in one of the hearings is that on December 8th, 2019, Melanie Gibb recorded a conversation between her, Chad, and Lori. It happened around 3.43 in the afternoon. Lori mentioned to her that she had to move JJ because of Kay's actions. And she says that he's safe and happy. Gibb tries to question her a little bit more, but then Lori doesn't really give her a helpful response. Lori mentions that Kay threatened her, and she didn't really give concrete examples. Mm. So in this part, basically, Lori was taking the road of Kay is bad news, and Kay is trying to get him, and I'm hiding him, which obviously we all know now that's not the case. But a little part of me was like, I hope that's it. I hope she's just hiding her from Kay for whatever reason. Maybe she's pissed off that she didn't get any of the money from Charles, and that that's just like a vendetta she has against Kay. Yeah. So the fact that she says, I know exactly where he is, and he's perfect fine still gives me chills it's so sad yeah so she also says something along the lines of like she's done nothing wrong Lori, during the conversation says something about Kay being dark and Lori starts to hint that she might know that this conversation's being recorded at one point and then she got a little heated but then she kind of calmed down she also mentioned that gib might be influenced by something dark and gib really upset her when she compared Lori's actions to a korahor and i hope i'm saying that right i haven't heard this interview in a while but what a korahor is is it's an antichrist described in Alma 30 in the Book of Mormon, and that's per Wikipedia. Gib told Lori that their salvation was in trouble. They bickered a little bit about scripture, and then the recording cuts off. So I think, and again, this is me kind of angry still towards Melanie, but I feel like this whole thing was just to help clear her name. Yeah. I don't think she did it out of actually caring about the kids and what's going on. I think it was, oh, shoot, this is a bigger thing than I thought originally. I need to clear my name. I don't know. I'm not saying that she's innocent in this, but I could see, like, your friend's a little wacky. She met Lori in 2018, so she'd always been a little wacky. Like, maybe she got a little wackier when she met Chad, 
But I think that like if your friendship was always like this person being weird, they're being a touch weirder, not that bad. And like, I don't know, I'm not going to blame her, but I also I'm not going to not blame her. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because this has been my life now for a year, right? Yeah. Just following this case. And it's the first case that I've been like, just invested and not saying that, you know, other people's tragedies or missing persons are more important than others. Mm -hmm. It's just this one is so out there that I'm like, this isn't real. Yeah, this didn't this couldn't have happened. Who let this happen? Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. So on December 11th of 2019, Tammy's body was exhumed so that an autopsy could be conducted. Right now, the charges against Chad and Laurie are not for murder. So I would imagine that there is no reason that that those details need to be public yet. Right. Unless they're being charged, you know, no need for it to be out. So now we are up to our fourth death. Right. Because we've got Joseph Ryan. Then we've got Charles Vallow. Then Tammy. Then, on December 12th of 2019, Alex dies at Zulima's house in Gilbert, Arizona. Per his autopsy, he died of a blood clot. It's convenient that he's dead. Let's start there. But it's a little bit interesting the days leading up to his death per his wife because he had been complaining of shortness of breath and he didn't want to go to a doctor in America and get medicine. He went to Mexico to get medicine, she said, because it was cheaper. Zulima is like kind of worried about him. So on December 12th, Zulima's son calls police to Zulima's home because he finds Alex in the bathroom on the floor, vomiting and gasping for air. So the reason why he went to go look for Alex was because his mother called him and asked him to go check on him. Because before that, he had been in his room minding his own business wearing headphones. So then he went to go check on him and that's when he found him. Yeah, the 911 call is just the strangest 911 call I've ever heard. All of the 911 calls around this are kind of strange. Also, Zulima is a little bit strange because police ask her if she knew Laurie. And again, she was like, no, I don't really know her that well. She's my husband's sister. When actually she met Alex through Laurie. (laughs) She was like very cooperative with police. And then one of her family members came to the hospital and was like, let me talk to you. And they were like, do not speak to them without an attorney. Then she gets a phone call and then she says she won't speak to them without a lawyer. But I think one of the most interesting things is that multiple sources confirm that a few days before Alex died, he had a call with someone and he got a priesthood blessing over the phone and that someone was Chad. So like they knew he was going to die. But like this all sounds very strange because if you felt like you were sick enough to die, you should have gone to the hospital. Oh, also, one of the things that they got, so they executed a search warrant on Zulima's house after this, and most of what they, most of the fruits of the search were redacted from publicly released reports, but the one thing that that people did know was that they found Alex's cell phone with data. We'll talk about what that means later. (laughs) So when her son Joseph called 911, he was in the bathroom, and the 911 operator is like trying to walk him through what to do. And at one point, he calls him his mother's boyfriend, didn't even say husband. And then also, like, they're trying to walk him through it. And he's making excuses. Like, they tell him at one point, I think, uh, can you put him on his back? No, he's too big. Can you do this? Can we do that? Like, no, there's poop on the ground. Yeah. 
And the autopsy revealed that he died of a blood clot. Yeah, there's a fancy term for it. Which I don't know much about blood clots, but like, how would they know he was going to die days before if it was a blood clot? They wouldn't have. And there's multiple, I, I mean, everyone's like, how? This is too convenient that he's dead. And I will say too that I've read that they're continuing to investigate his death, even though the autopsy says, you know, natural death. And I remember every day going on the medical examiner's website every day and refreshing is is there new stuff? Is there new stuff? But I still don't buy it. I feel like there's a way that they did this. And not to be all conspiracy theory and crazy about like how this happened. It's just too easy. It's too easy. It's too convenient. How are all these people dying? And in my opinion, it's very easy to blame him for most of the things that happened now that he's not around. On December 28, 2019, the Rexburg Police Department went public on their search for J.J. and Tylee. The police also suggest that the disappearance of J.J. and Tylee may be linked to the death of Tammy. Then the next day, the police say that Chad and Laurie are persons of interest in the children's disappearance. So the first time that they raid Chad Daybell's home, it was on January 3rd, 2020. The FBI and local law enforcement searched his house and I want to say his like shed and barn as well. And they recovered 43 items. That includes computers, journals, documents, all kinds of stuff, right? On January 7th, Larry and Kay Woodcock go to Rexburg and they meet with investigators. And this is like the big press conference. They announce that there's a $20,000 reward uh, for any information to lead them to the children. There's a lot of people that came forward. I mean, there was even like one rumor that someone saw Tylee at like a concert. Hmm. Like there was so many things that came of this. And unfortunately, none of them were real leads. Chad has a pretty big family, from what I understand. And one of his brothers on January 10th asked him to work with investigators to locate the children. I've also heard as well when I visited Rexburg that one of his brothers also spoke to his church at one point, to like the men in his church and said, what my brother's doing isn't what I believe. And it's sad, you know, like that his his family, a lot of them live in Rexburg and he's kind of yeah. hurting hurting their daily lives as well. Yeah. On January 25th, this is like a big day. Lori is served with a notice from the Kauai Police Department that she must produce the children and bring them to the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare and the Rexburg Police Department within five days. This is like where the countdown starts for Kay and Larry. They're like, we will know yeah. in five days. Yeah. And this is kind of where like the world was holding their breath. Like, what's going to happen? In the documentary that we were talking about earlier, they have there's news reporters asking Lori in Hawaii, where are the children? Where are the children? Where are the children? There's people all over the world who are wondering where they are. She like flat out says she's like, that's nice. Like she like is very flippant, like, okay, whatever. Like, we're not talking about her children. Yeah. And I, I want to say that's the first video where Nate Eaton from East Idaho News, who's like a big player in telling the story, spoke with her. And it's just ridiculous. She also looked like she kind of loved the attention. Oh, for sure. She loved the attention. Well, I guess I see it both ways. Like, she's excited that everyone's talking about her. She is obsessed with herself. Yeah. But then also it's like, they're onto us. That's a bummer. So the police in Hawaii seize Lori and Chad's rental car and search their townhome. And they found a variety of just odd things. And I want to say like the kids' birth certificates and stuff too. Which at first you're like, oh, maybe they were flying with the kids. But then there's no trace of the kids ever making it to Hawaii. Yeah. So the day comes in January that she's supposed to produce the kids. Kay and Larry Woodcock both are in Rexburg at this time. And the deadline comes and it passes and no kids are brought. 
So this day, I remember vividly on February 20th, Lori is arrested in Hawaii and she's arrested on two charges of desertion, non-support of dependent children, resisting or obstructing officers, criminal solicitation to commit a crime, contempt of the court. Her bail is set at $5 million. Delicious. And I remember we were at the playground with my son and like, you know, I opened my phone for a second. And I was like, what? She's finally arrested. And I'm like losing my mind, like texting everyone. She's arrested finally. But also I'm just like, but, but we don't know where the kids are still. Yeah. After a few failed attempts to reduce her bail, Lori waves her extradition to Idaho. So in March, she's finally returned to Rexburg. And that was a big day, too. I've heard stories of people like from people that live in Rexburg about that day of how like they were waiting to, to see her. Yeah. But when they brought her in the jail and no one got to see her. Yeah. And they waited all day. So when you're there... There's like the court on the corner. Then there's like this fence behind it. And then the jail and everything is like right there. So it's like all in one like compound, complex, whatever you want to call it. And there's like this little itty bitty fence where you can kind of chill and like see what's going on. But they didn't bring her where they expected her to be. One of the articles that I read talked about a woman who was in her jail pod, which is kind of like an adjacent cell. And she talked about like when she was brought in, she had like a bulletproof vest so I was like, that's interesting because when they bring people in who've done heinous things, that's pretty common that they'll have them wear a bulletproof vest. But at this point, like her charges are relatively minor, right? Yeah. Well, and it produced a lot of rumors that she might have been pregnant because of the vest. Or that she looked pregnant because she had the vest on. She looked pregnant. Oof. You're like, that's a vest. Calm down. So Judge Eddins reduces Laurie's bail to $1 million at her initial court appearance in Rexburg. Then on the 13th, during a telephonic hearing, Judge Eddins removes himself from the case at the request of the defense teams. I was at that hearing. Ooh, Amanda was at that hearing. So then Judge Michelle Mallard was assigned to the case. Soon after, Edwina Elcox, Brian Webb, both were defense attorneys on behalf of Lori. They withdrew as counsel, which left only one attorney for Lori named Mark Means. And oh, man. Yeah. And so he tries numerous times to get her bail reduced. He says there's new facts. He says that things aren't fair. He says that there's issues with his communication with Lori that are unconstitutional constitutional and he just keeps trying to get her bail reduced over the months it doesn't work great and so i mentioned a moment ago about the person who was in the pod with her and just some things that she quoted laurie as saying so she said that laurie was totally aware of all the attention she was getting and that laurie had said we had the death of kobe bryant and covid but no there's me i'm the lead story i'm more important than all that stuff and the woman said she knew she was the main story and she liked it and then gross gross she taught laurie how to like use things she could get from the commissary as makeup so that like when she looks like she's done up that's why it's because they're they use things like jolly rancher candies for lipstick or colored pencils for eyeshadow and she like looked forward to her hearings one day there was a hearing and then she came back and, and she said like here it comes here's my story turn it up let's see what they say about me now and then when her bail was set at one million during these multiple hearings where they're trying to get the bail pulled down, she would say, like, are you bonding out? And then Lori would say, I hope so. And then one time before one of the meetings, Lori ran her fingers from her head and then down her body and said, we'll see if all of this is worth one million. No. 
hate her. I literally want to throw up. I despise her so much. She's the absolute worst piece of human garbage. The worst. So then, in April 2020, EastIdahoNews.com obtains a letter that states that the Idaho Attorney General's office is investigating Lori and Chad for conspiracy, attempted murder, and or murder. And then by May of 2020, that's when Alex's autopsy had come out saying that he died of a blood clot. Now we're getting to the heavy. On June 9th, starting at 7.30 in the morning, the FBI, Fremont County Sheriff's Office, and Rexburg Police Department execute a search warrant at Chad's home. They had many different types of equipment because they were digging in multiple spots. They find remains near a fire pit, and then they also find remains north of the pond. And at that point, they identify them as unidentified human remains. And they conduct their search from the 9th to the 10th. So it's like two days. It's a long time. And this is an important point to know. Remember we said they took Alex's phone before. Well, the FBI has a team. It's called CAST, but it stands for the Cellular Analysis Team. And what they do is they review phone records and they provide information to local law enforcement. And so they looked at Alex's phone and they confirmed that on September 8th of 2019, he was at Yellowstone with them. So he was in the picture, but his phone also confirms that he was there. And then it shows him bouncing back and forth between his apartment and Laurie's apartment. And he's like kind of on the move all day. And then on the 9th, he's at his apartment, then Laurie's apartment, then his apartment, then Chad's house behind the house near like the northeast side of the barn. Then he's there for a little over an hour. And then they say that there was a possible erroneous ping that showed that he was in St. Anthony. But then it shows Alex Cox back at Chad's property. Then he goes to Del Taco. And then after that time period is when Chad then sends his text to his wife about burying the raccoon and burning limbs. Right. They outline all of these phone pings in one of the court docs. But then also just a couple things from this is, oh, my gosh, they know where you are at all times, which is fascinating, you know, like that they they figured that out. But also like just how stupid and how just horrifying was it that it was on Chad's property, like both bodies were on Chad's property the whole freaking time and that he's still pleading not guilty for everything is just like they were on your property. They were there. He hasn't been arrested at this point yet. No. This is what makes me angry is that I don't understand how Laurie went and had a vacation. And so when they announced that remains were found in the documentary, that's when Kay lets out this wail that like it like hits you to your core. They they say like they're unidentified, but like, yeah, she knows. You know what I mean? Like she just like lets out this wail. But so they get there at 730 on the 9th. Chad, during all of this, is in his car watching. Lori calls him from jail while he's sitting in the car. And this phone call is just, its it hurts your heart because they're not saying it, but they're saying it. Because he's like, they're searching the property. She's like, oh, they're searching your house again? He's like, no, the, the property. Oh, like you can tell a little more resigned yeah. than the other conversations I feel like they've had. Yeah, for sure. And then she says, can I call you later? And he's like, if I can pick up, I will. Idiots. But so once the investigators find remains, I, I'm assuming it was pretty clear that they could even to Chad in his car. So he tries to skadoot and flee the scene, which like, I'm like, come on, my dude. Come on. So 
about a mile from his home, he was apprehended. He was arrested and charged with two felony charges of concealment and distribution or alteration of evidence. And there's someone that took a picture of him being arrested and put it up that day. Delicious. It was just so great to see that asshole in handcuffs. Yeah. So the next day at Chad's first hearing, Rob Wood, the same prosecutor, confirms that the remains on Chad's property were JJ and Tylee. And so that's the first time that it's publicly announced, I believe. Yeah. And what what broke my heart, too, when they talk about it in the documentary, it was said other places, too. Kay and Larry didn't have to ID the remains. Brandon Boudreaux came up and offered to do it for them. And just that little, like, piece of decency. Yeah. In the scene they show in the documentary... They were like getting ready to leave and Larry got like really bad vertigo and like couldn't stand. And so Kay was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then Brandon is like, I am going to do this. Like he doesn't ask. He's like, I'm going to do this for you. And then Larry's talking about it. And he says, this was the last time my boy needed me to be there for him. And I wasn't like not that verbatim, but like that's the sentiment of what he's saying. And like, again, Larry always getting us straight in the heart, but like so sad like so so sad and like so kind of brandon because he did not need to do this yeah he didn't need to reach out to them he didn't need to take on this terrible weight and brandon remarried and his wife came and she was wonderful and i was like oh my god love these people don't know you love you (laughs) don't mind us crying over here as we saw this I feel bad for him, too, just like off topic. But him and Melanie are still in the courts about their kids together. And it's just like, who's the one that's been a consistent, good human being the whole time? And we didn't even bring this up just because it doesn't really correspond with this. But at one point, Brandon's even shot at. Yeah. And there's just so much. There's so much to this. And there's not enough time to go over every single little thing. But every single piece of this case is just jaw-dropping. Larry gets you, man. Okay. So as of this point in time in our timeline, and honestly, as of today, which is February 3rd, 2021, there are no murder charges. Makes me so mad. The Fremont County prosecutors filed two felony counts of conspiracy to commit destruction of alteration or concealment of evidence against Laurie. Then on the 2nd of July, prosecutors dismissed the two felony counts of desertion and non-supportive children against Laurie because she can't do those things because they're no longer alive. Also on the 29th of of June, Chad's house was raided again. In mid-July, Laurie pled not guilty to criminal solicitation to commit a crime, misdemeanor resisting or obstructing of officers and contempt of court. And her jury trial was scheduled to start in January of 2021. Amanda, what was supposed to happen on July 22nd? of 2020. So remember how I said that the world was ending and that's like what Chad and Lori were getting ready for? They believed that it was supposed to end on July 22nd, 2020, which like all of us kind of thought the world was ending at that time, if you remember. Yeah, but everybody knows that God's world has a different time zone. Oh, you're right. I forgot about that. I just winked at Amanda for the first time that I've ever winked well in my life. (laughs) Thank you for that. You're welcome. But I remember that day too, just being like, well, the world didn't end. How's things in Rexburg? And like people from Rexburg were posting too on some of the Lori Vallow Facebook groups. All's well here. We're still alive. Just so silly. So ridiculous. They were preparing for this day and nothing happened. In one of the interviews too, Melanie Gibb was talking about it and she's like, oh, it was in July. I I thought in something it was August. I'm like, okay, well, maybe August. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, the world didn't end. I mean, we feel like it still kind of is ending. Our world is different. Oh, I mean, world's different. We're all different. 
So on August 3rd and 4th, Chad had his preliminary hearing to see if there was enough probable cause for the case to be moved to district court. And I believe Amanda watched that entire hearing. (laughs) Is that correct? I did. Multiple times. Multiple times. And all of the deeply disturbing details. So during the hearing and on my Instagram, too, as I was watching it, I was just putting up notes the whole time because I'm just so invested in this and angered and saddened by everything that's happened. But they brought up a number of people to discuss different aspects of what was going on. And Detective Hermosillo read adoption details for JJ and also talked about Chad and Lori's marriage certificate. And I know there was like big rumors online that like maybe they didn't actually get real married. Why is her name still Valo or is it Daybell? And I'm like, guys, you do know that your name doesn't just magically change the second you sign that paper, right? There's a lot of paperwork and it's really annoying. So much paperwork. No one tells you that. (laughs) No, it's awful. But anyways, that was a big rumor that circulated for the longest time. Detective Hermosillo also gave a detailed recollection of what happened the day the bodies were found and what he experienced from his point of view. And warning real quick, a couple details about the bodies. So JJ was wrapped in a black plastic bag and they noticed a round object protruding through the dirt. And then they used a sharp instrument to cut through the plastic. And underneath that, there was another layer of white plastic. And then they cut into that and they saw basically his hair. And they saw a small body wrapped in the black plastic covered in duct tape. And when he's describing this, you just see everyone in the courtroom, their face fall. JJ was found north of the pond. And when I say pond, it's a drained pond. There's no water. Oh, like a retention pond? No, I think it maybe was a pond at one point in time. Oh. But it's no longer a pond. But when you look at it, you're like, oh, that's where a pond was. So... Yeah, yeah, it's empty. And then this, again, made me cry again when I was watching this the first time. Larry is just sobbing in the background when he's describing the scene. It just hurt my heart. This poor boy. And then there, there is a detailed affidavit that was released also that kind of gave some of the details, but not quite everything. When he discusses Tylee, she was found near the fire pit. And it was basically the pet cemetery. He says north of the pet cemetery, but that's where the pet cemetery was. And that sounds like the same place he said that he buried the raccoon. And what he says is he found a mass of burnt flesh, or I should, I'm saying he did, but he watched this happen. But they found a mass of burnt flesh and charred bone. And I'm just like, what did they do to her? This poor girl. She wasn't as young as JJ, but can you imagine? I was just going to say, I was like, I want to think that from what I saw, it looked like she had been dismembered first. So the language that Chad used about burning limbs feels like Chad was like, oh, I'm burning some limbs to Tammy. Wait, wait a minute. The full t- the first part of the text is, I felt I should burn all of the limb debris by the fire pit. Oh, no, 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 no. That's tree limbs. Oh, I know. Oh, but do you okay. see what I'm saying? Where like, that feels like him being cute because it's limbs. Yeah. Well, and the weird thing is, I want to say there there was a reason why that wouldn't have made sense. It had already rained or something around that time frame. It's been a while. But yeah, the whole thing is just grotesque. But they found pieces of her and there was a melted green bucket that was basically filled with flesh is the best way I can say. That's absolutely disgusting. And then under the bucket, there was a skull. And so it's just why were they so I mean, they were cruel to both of them. But this is this is a level like a deeper level of cruelty that they did to her. 
they don't treat her like she's human, right? He buries her in the pet cemetery. He, yeah, most humans would not be able to handle the smell of burning flesh, right? In a place where like a fire pit, that's where you're going to go spend time with your family and like roast marshmallows and stuff. And you tried to burn a teenage girl before her 17th birthday. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, she disappeared first. There are records of JJ still being alive after Yellowstone. There's like a ring doorbell from one of the neighbors. I, I don't know if it's ring, but there's a doorbell camera or something where you can see him running around and playing and all of that. And it's just, did they get rid of her because she was his protector? And and also, he had autism. And from what I know about autistic children is they are very good with their routines and their patterns. And when things change, that's horrible for them, right? And his number one person was gone. And you know how they say like, oh, he was acting out. Why do you think he was acting out? I mean, here's the thing. Like, they were children and they were her children. And maybe she, look, I do. I think that she was involved in their murder. Yeah, absolutely, I do. But best case scenario, she knew. She knew what yeah. happened to them. Like, she knew her children were missing. And she went to Hawaii, married a less than a month widower, smiled and acted like everything was fine and took wedding photos on the beach with that Amazon ring, by the way. Yeah. It's another level of mm. monstrous. Yeah. So continuing on, it gets a little bit more like case procedural from here. So we'll try to like keep it succinct because the case moves from the county court to the district court for both Chad and Lori. Both of them are wanting jury trials. So Chad's trial was also set to begin in January. But so anyway, Chad's attorney is John Pryor. Laurie's is Mark Means, as we mentioned. The prosecutor is Rob Wood. So in September of 2020, Rob Wood files a motion to combine Laurie and Chad's cases. Makes total sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense because they're going to have the same witnesses, save evidence. And trying to get two jury pools. Yeah. Yeah. Two non-biased <laughs> jury so then Lori pleads not guilty in September as well. She's fine with the cases being combined, right? Also in September, her counsel is like, we want her to be able to wear street clothes and not like her prison uniform. And the judge is like, fine, but it has to be her clothes. So like, I guess they can't like dollar up. You know what I mean? Like it has to be like what she would normally wear. And so Chad's attorney prior is like, no, we do not want these to be combined. No, because he's going to try to blame. <laughs> and he's like, it'll be prejudice to chad and i'm like ooh, this marriage is starting off strong they which i'm like i think that if needed chad would just completely throw her under the bus but so mm, maybe i still think it's all gonna be on alex that's my guess oh I, th I think i think it is too now we're in district court with judge boyce and he rules that the cases are gonna be combined great so we're nearing the end of 2020. Yeah. A time we all were excited about. Anne Cushing, Joseph's sister, releases an audio to East Idaho News. And it's from a 2018 religious meeting with Laurie and her friends. And they're discussing Joseph Ryan. And she says she was going to kill him. I was going to kill him like the scriptures say. Like Nephi, which was another Mormon prophet, just to stop the pain and to stop him from coming after me and to stop him coming after my children. I would go through the scriptures and find all of the things. If he comes against you once, if he comes against you twice, if he comes against you three times, then you can kill him. It says it in the scriptures. But not in the law. Yeah, like, ugh. Ugh. And I mean, like, doesn't sound like Joseph Ryan was the great guy, but still, we don't murder. So soon after, three days later, on the 9th, Phoenix, Arizona authorities announced that they are now looking into the death. So, okay, mid-November, Pryor and Means, both defense counsel, 
file a motion to disqualify the prosecutor, Rob Wood. And they're basically arguing witness tampering because there's a recording of Rob Wood speaking to Laurie's sister, Summer Shiflet, and Alex's wife, Zalima Pestenes. And so this becomes kind of a whole issue. But what's interesting is both Summer and Zulima both had counsel present during this meeting and their counsel was the same person, which is another thing to keep in mind. Now let's fast forward. We're in 2021, a little over a month ago. Zulima's attorney is talking, he's being interviewed about Summer Shiflet and like that controversy and whether she was swayed by Rob Wood or not. On January 2nd, the existence of Zulima's use immunity agreement comes to light and the hearings to determine whether Rob Wood should be removed as counsel from the case. And so Zulima's counsel states that their conversation was mostly regarding Zulima's immunity agreement, very cavalierly right. and like slides it into the record and everyone freaks out. And so, I mean, immunity agreement means that you give information and you'll give that information so long as you cannot be charged for and then insert a very narrow scope of like what you can't be charged for. Right. It's not like you get immunity and get out of jail free pass. It could be maybe they had something illegal in their house. You know, and she's like, if she's like super honest, then she won't go to jail. It doesn't necessarily mean that she knew anything about the kids. Doesn't mean she doesn't, but isn't an automatic accomplice maker, if you will. So January 8th, Judge Boyd decides that Rob Wood would not be removed to the case. And so you're all gearing up for cases coming. And then Lauren Chad's case is rescheduled to August 30th to start. And who knows what's going to be put out before then, too. So interestingly, January 19th, Mark Means filed a motion to request that Laurie be given access to a cell phone while in jail because what he's arguing is that they can't have privileged conversations because some of their conversations have been um, recorded or that places where they can speak, like if they're on the phone, they don't just let her into a room with a phone, right? Like someone standing nearby who can listen. So they're like, that's problematic. But even if they give her a cell phone, it's kind of hard to be like, here's a cell phone. Now go into a private room and just do what you want to do. Yeah. And yeah, there, there was some conversations that were recorded at one point. I, I want to say it was like when COVID started changing the way procedures were done. Yeah. But I would be... I think he's just trying for any little thing. Yeah. Well, but I will say that the COVID-19 effect on the courts is monumental. Courts are, you know, pausing non-emergency hearings and the way things are working is very differently. And in addition, our prison systems were not designed for no. pandemics and the way that you can communicate with your clients was not created by pandemics. So look, people can get off on technicalities. And she seems kind of like she has a horseshoe. Yeah, I hope that's not the case. Just right up there. So like, I certainly hope it's not the case, but it would be smart to withhold additional charges until this is all done so that anything that sours this case can't sour another one. And then just our last thing on our timeline. On January 20th, Joseph Ryan's death was ruled natural. They confirmed that it was a heart attack. So, yeah, again, but that's where we are. Yeah. And I I truly believe that there was more to Alex's death. I just it doesn't sit well with me that he died naturally. I know I've scoured that autopsy. I've talked to people in the medical field about his autopsy. And there's so many things that there's like time frames to be checked. And if they don't check for this exact same thing or this exact specific item that maybe it's not able to be found. Again, not to get all like, ooh, conspiracy and like all of this, but it's just so freaking convenient. 
It's too convenient. Yeah. They can't be this lucky. No. And like, also, we we don't really know how they killed the kid. Like, obviously, we know a little bit of possibly what happened. Yeah. We don't know that. We don't know Tammy's. Tammy's, I think, is going to be kind of the, uh, it's going to open the gate to everything when hers comes out. That's my guess. And yeah, this, this case has been one. And honestly, this is the first case that I've just been like, any, any news I see about it, anything new that comes up, I read every article. I look at every single thing. I'm in every group, you know, like what is happening? I've been to freaking <laughs> Rexburg. This audio was originally recorded on February 3rd, but on February 4th, the medical examiner in Utah released the autopsy for Tammy Daybell. And so we've been talking about Idaho a lot, but she was buried in Utah where her family was from. And so that's where the autopsy was performed. The results of the autopsy were then sent to Fremont County in Idaho, but they are not being released. Interestingly, also on the 4th, the Fremont County Prosecuting Attorney's Office noted that they are resuming full authority and responsibility over the case of the death of Tammy Daybell. So I think that means they're like leaning towards there was something fishy. So as we hear more about the case, we'll post updates. If you know about this case, then you know that there is so much we didn't cover that we would love to talk about. But that's for future episodes. We wanted to give a good primer this time. Again, on our website, we will have a timeline and an infographic showing who the key people are in the story. And if you're new to this case, sorry if we overwhelmed you. It it took a couple tries, too, when we first started reading about it to go, oh, wait, who? Which one? Everyone feels that. And if you have questions, please feel free to reach out. We will answer the best that we can. If you're new to listening to True Creeps and this is your introduction, normally our episodes run about an hour. This is more because there's only so much you can take out of the story without making it something different. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 